And turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12 as we continue to go through Matthew. Uh, and we've called this, going through Matthew, uh, we've called this Your Kingdom Come. As everything continually is pointing to the kingdom of God coming here. But I want to go back and, as we, and again, when Matthew wrote this uh, epistle, it wasn't, it didn't have chapter breaks, it didn't have verse breaks in it. Uh, it was written as just one note. And so Matthew, uh, from what we know about him, he was a tax collector. Uh, it seemed that he was, I'm going to just make an assumption that he was good with numbers, that things had to make sense. And so really in, in the book of Matthew, he is presenting this case of who Jesus is and, and why you should believe in him. And so at the beginning of chapter 11, we saw a theme that was going to continue to carry out that we'll be talking about tonight, and that is the expectations of who Jesus really is. And at the beginning of chapter 11, we see John the Baptist, and he is in prison. And we don't know why, we don't know what his thoughts were at the time, but he, he asked his disciples to go to Jesus and ask him, are you really the Messiah? And that's what we've seen throughout 11 and into 12 is people who are wondering if this really is the Messiah because their expectations of what the Messiah should be are not being met. The, the Messiah, the Savior, the Jesus that they wanted wasn't showing up. Because in their mind, and you're going to really have to use your imagination for this, their hope was in the military and their hope was in politicians. I know that's far off from where we are. And they wanted somebody who could defeat the Romans that were oppressing them, that kept forcing their way onto them, but they also felt burdened and wearisome from the um, religious leaders that would take the law, as, as Mike Siever talked about last week, and just continue to add to it. And so something like Sabbath that was meant for rest just became burdensome because they had to make sure of all these additional rules that they were following. And so it just seemed even the part of life, think through that, even the part of life that was supposed to be restful was burdensome. And it makes you weary and it makes you worn out and it, it just continues to drag on. And, and so they have these expectations of a Messiah that would come, but there's this guy, Jesus, and he's doing this incredible work, but all he's doing is like healing people. And he's not some big vocal leader, and we're told he just, he was not, nothing stood out about him. Um, we've mentioned how many times that people had come and stepped forward and, and led riots and tried to lead revolutions against the, against the Romans and against these different things, and they were always squashed and they would end up crucified. They would end up being slaughtered. They would end up being killed. You just couldn't match up with the Romans. And here's a guy who's just, in his own words, gentle and humble. So John the Baptist questions who he is, and John and Jesus reports back, go tell them that this is what they see. And he uses prophecy from Isaiah to describe what he's doing, that he's healing the sick, that the blind see that the gospel is being preached to the poor, the good news is being preached to the poor. And Jesus then, after John the Baptist, he explains that what you want to see isn't who I am. 
What you think the answer should be is not why I'm here. That's not why I have, I have come, but, but you're having trouble understanding that. And then at the end of chapter 11, he describes himself as gentle and humble. The only place in Scripture, now all of Scripture describes who Jesus is. It is how we can know Jesus. It is how we can know God through Jesus. But Jesus only uses two words to describe himself in all of Scripture. And he says, I am gentle and humble. Not what you normally look for in leadership. You want the strong guy. You want the guy who talks a big game, who, who's known for backing up what he says. And we will chase after him. But that's not who Jesus is. Jesus then, that he explains that he, him and his, his disciples are walking after being in synagogue on the Sabbath and they pick some grains of wheat and the Pharisees are furious. And again, it just, I want to stop here. Mike talks about it briefly, but I want to explain what is happening here. The Pharisees are mad and they're saying, hey, you can't do that on the Sabbath. The main intention of the Sabbath was to rest and spend time with God. The disciples are literally with God. And they're resting, spending time with Jesus. And the only way that I can kind of explain it, because we're going to see this, because, spoiler alert, the Pharisees don't like Jesus. When I was living in Indianapolis, I was there for a couple years, and uh, one time it snowed in the winter, and about four inches of snow fell. Uh, I am from way up, I've lived the majority of, well, I've lived a lot of places, but Altogether, the most I've ever lived in one spot is in the Adirondack Mountains of New York State. About an hour and a half from Montreal, 30 minutes from Vermont. So about as far up there as you can get. Five and a half, six hours from New York City. And we got a lot of snow. All the time. Uh, I've seen snow personally in every month but July and August. And so four inches of snowfall in Indianapolis, the whole city shuts down. I'm in the grocery store. And a, uh, an elderly lady in front of me says, ah, are you from around here? And I was like, no, I'm not. I'm from way up in New York. She goes, oh, how are you adjusting to all this snow? And I was like, four inches isn't bad for the summer. Like, it's, we get that a lot. And I said, uh, and she looked at me. I said, I'm from way up in the mountains in New York. And she said, mountains in New York. <laughs> I kind of was confused. And she said, there's no mountains in New York. I said, oh, no, there, there is up in the Adirondack Mountains. Like, you know, it's actually a lot of mountains. They have 46 high peaks, they call them, that you can hike and uh, this and this. And she goes, I wasn't born yesterday. There are no mountains in New York. And this was before smartphones or Google. I had a Motorola phone that weighed about 32 pounds. I couldn't look up anything on it to prove my point. So I just said, okay. I don't know how else, to, how else to describe this to you. And this is a very small thing of what Jesus is going through. Because the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the religious leaders keep trying to catch him. And one of my favorites is when they're like, hey, uh, let's say that there's this guy, right? And he, he marries this, this, this uh, woman and then she dies and so he marries another woman and then she dies and he goes through and it's a lot more detailed than what I'm giving. And then at the end they're like, so... Whose wife will she be in heaven? And he says, oh, that's not how heaven works. That's not how marriage works in heaven. And they're like, we got gotcha! you! And he's like, no, 
I'm from there. I lived there. I created it. I've lived there for eternity past. I've lived there for eternity future. You don't even understand how I see time. I've lived there. So most of these arguments that he's having with the Pharisees aren't really arguments. They're trying to catch him, and he's just explaining where he's from and what he wrote. And they're like, well, how about the law? And he's like, yeah, I wrote the law. Like what you view as the Mosaic law, like he got that from me. Like that was me. Lord of the Sabbath, I am Lord. They're spending time with me. That's how I intended it when I wrote it to you. And so these aren't really arguments, but this is the relationship that Jesus is having with the religious leaders. Is the religious leaders are saying, no, we understand God. And he's like, no, I am God. Please understand me. And I want to take a moment because we, we give the Pharisees a bad name and it seems like they're always against Jesus. But also remember that Jesus used a Pharisee and Paul to bring the gospel around the world. He used the education that Paul had to go and to teach the gospel of Jesus Christ around the world. I just want to throw that out there in a side note because we have a lot of time tonight. Um, so, so tonight we will see Matthew continuing to explain and he's kind of wrapping up this summary of who you think Jesus is, the expectations that you have of Jesus. We should have known all along. So Matthew 15 Starting, I'm sorry, Matthew 12, starting in verse 15. I'm great with numbers. <laughs> starting in verse 15 of chapter 12. Actually, we'll jump up to 14. It might not be on the screen. But we left off last week, and the Pharisees are beginning to be furious at Jesus. And here he is claiming to be Lord of the Sabbath. And so verse 14 says, But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Not how they might disrupt his ministry. Not how they might get people not to believe in him. They plotted to kill him. Pick it up in verse 15. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. A large crowd followed him, and he healed all who were ill. He wanted them not to tell others about him. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. This is Isaiah 42, uh, chapter 42, verses 1 through 4. Um, he says, Here is my servant, whom I have chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out, till he has brought justice through to victory. In his name, the nations will put their hope. So I want to walk through this passage briefly, and I'm going to just throw out some verses. We probably won't have time to hit on them uh, tonight, but I'm more than happy to send you my uh, notes or outline for you to look up um, this week. I want to point out a couple things uh, as we walk through this passage, and hopefully it'll be aware. It, it tells us that he was, starting verse 15, that he was aware of this. He was fully aware that the Pharisees were plotting to kill him. I don't know how much pressure you feel in your job, but being aware that they were plotting to kill him, and he just continues on. But he says he withdrew, Jesus withdrew. He, he knew his timing had not come yet, that nothing was going to disrupt God's timing. And that's where we see him um, telling people, and it, I always find it somewhat humorous, 
the previous passage or, um, in the verses before, the reason that they wanted to kill him was he's walking around on the Sabbath and he, he sees a man with a withered hand. And all he does, so you couldn't do work, meaning that uh, work would entail, according to the, the Pharisaical law regarding Sabbath, he couldn't touch the man because that would be considered work. And so the man says, can you heal me? And the Pharisees are like, this is it. If he puts his hand on this man and heals him, we got him. And Jesus replies, raise your hand up. And as the man is raising his hand up, it heals. It's just healed. And Jesus says, don't tell anybody about this. That's the part I find humorous. Imagine seeing somebody whose hand for their entire life was, we don't know what it means, but it was withered. It was noticeable. And then the next day, it's fine. You've known him for however many years, 15, 30, we don't know. But all of a sudden, the hand is totally fine. And you're like, what happened to your hand? That thing used to not look like that. And they're like, oh, I can't tell you. (laughs) No, you'd say, you'll never believe what happened. We see it with the blind man. He heals the blind man, and he's like, hey, don't tell anybody about this. And then he turns around and goes, gotcha. I can see! And Jesus did it! But he's telling them not to tell anybody because he already has a large crowd following him. The Romans don't like when a Jewish man has a large crowd following him because it ends up in death to a lot of people in multiple ways. So he's not trying to necessarily have a crowd follow him. Uh, He's telling them, don't tell anybody. The the religious leaders are becoming furious that people are now listening to Jesus and not them. They're losing their audience. They're losing their popularity. But then it says, so he withdrew, followed by, and a large crowd followed him. Later on, we'll see that when Jesus' teachings start to become a little bit more, that a big crowd following him, a lot of these people, it seems, were just in it for the entertainment value. They were in it for what they could get out of it. But when Jesus starts saying, hey, you have to actually, like, believe in me, and you have to live out these principles, Uh, John chapter 6, it's a very very easy reference to remember, John 6, 6, 6, John chapter 6, verse 66, uh, it tells us from this time, after Jesus' teaching started to become a little bit more about this is what it looks like if you're actually following me, uh, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. They were in it for themselves. They were in it for the good parts. They were in it to see what Jesus was going to heal today. But when it started getting a little harder, some, even his own disciples said, "Uh, Jesus, these teachings are kind of hard. And he says, are you going to abandon me too? Verse 67 and 68. And they're like, no, we're with you. But the majority of these people, when you see large crowds, just know the majority of them would walk away. Uh, Verse 18, he says, Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love and whom I delight. Those are the words that we see at his baptism with John the Baptist. Again, if if there's a prophecy back in Isaiah that was written hundreds of years before this, and it says this is how God views the Messiah, and then you're watching Jesus get baptized and these words ring out from heaven, this is my son, this is my servant in whom I am well Please. And then again, we aren't there yet in Matthew, but at the transfiguration, he says those same words again. And Matthew is quoting these passages from Isaiah throughout his book to tell people, hey, we should have known this. We were told this in prophecy, that this is who Jesus would be. And he continues, he will not quarrel or cry out. 
He's not arguing with people. He's just explaining where he's from. He's explaining what he wrote to people who think they know better. It isn't a quarrel, it's instruction. He's not crying out. He's not screaming at people. Uh, it goes on. He, it, no one uh, will hear his voice in the streets. The streets were the main thoroughfare. If you wanted to get people's attentions, you went to the streets. You went to where the people were. But where we see Jesus is he's on a mountainside. He's, he's in a boat on the shore. He's just talking to fishermen. He's with lepers. He's with the tax collectors. He's with sinners. He's not where you would expect him to be. And the people expected more from their Messiah. They expected him to be with the religious leaders. But yet he's opposing the religious leaders. Jesus was with the people who were hurting. The people that he calls harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. The people that Jesus has compassion on. The people that Jesus goes to. The people who were just feeling oppressed. It's interesting how Jesus treats people who feel oppressed. He doesn't tell them that they're actually not oppressed. He's filled with compassion for them. He heals them, and he gives them hope. These are people that are just trying to make it through another day of human existence under an oppressive government, over an oppressive religious setup. Jesus calls them tired, weak, burdened, harassed, helpless. That's where we find Jesus. Verse 20, it says, a bruised reed he will not break. At this time, they used reeds for a lot of things. They used them for pens, uh, just what we know as these reeds that grow out, these little hollow uh, things that grow basically wherever there is water. One historian wrote, uh, reed, you found any body of water and you could find a million of them. And so if one got injured or one was, it says, bruised or it was dented or it kind of bent, you just threw it out because you probably had 400 of them in your home. You used them for everything. And when they got bent, you just chucked it, grabbed another one. It says Jesus, and this is his explaining, going back to the humble and lowly, that even a bruised reed he has compassion on. What most people don't find useful, and, and in the context, they're talking about the lepers and the crippled and the broken and the uh, people with evil spirits and go on and on, the people that we constantly find Jesus with, the people that you and I, if we're being honest, that we try to avoid when we see them in the street, that is who Jesus went to. That is who Jesus found and had compassion and love for. Uh, that is the people that he brought hope to. It continues on, in a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. A smoldering wick is, um, it's not putting off light. Why do you light a candle? For light, and it's not doing that. Uh, why do you light a fire at this time? For heat. And so if it's just about to go out, it's not serving its purpose. And throughout history, we've seen this happen with uh, the older generations of different civilizations where they would say, you're no longer of use to us, you're too old, go for your last hike, or go for your last walk, or we'll send you out on a ship, or we'll send you out on a ice or whatever it is, and how they would just get rid of people who were becoming a burden on society. They were no longer helpful, and so they would cast them out. That's what he, the meaning here behind a smoldering wick is it's not serving its purpose anymore. Just put it out and get a new one. But Jesus does not see people like that. Jesus values the life of his creation. Jesus is in the business of bringing hope to the hopeless. And then he finishes in, in verse 20 with, till he has brought justice through to victory. God's justice is different than our justice. 
Most of the time when I view something as justice, it's somebody's getting punished for hurting me. I am the person that is benefiting from justice. There's something that I don't like, and so I want it taken care of, so in some way it betters my life. That's justice. God's justice is what's best for the other person. What's best for his creation does not make sense. What was best for you and for me were sinners who were continually sinning against God. He viewed in his form of justice to send his one and only son to come to earth to die a horrible death at the hands of his own creation so that we no longer had to pay the penalty for our sins. Jesus did for us what we could never do for ourselves. And now, if you put your faith in him, if you call out to him and make Jesus the forgiver of your sins and the leader of your life, you no longer have to pay the consequences of your sins. So he came to proclaim that justice in to everybody, to the hurting, the hopeless. Brought justice through to victory. God's justice is always on display by bringing to people what they not what they deserve, but by paying the price for their sins. That he has the victory over sin and death for anyone who calls out to him. And then verse 21, and we'll hit on this as he was talking. In his name, the nations will put their hope. In his name, the nations will put their hope. Every nation is hopeless without Jesus. Jesus is the only hope. We can find ourselves putting our hope in the same thing. Politicians, military leaders, popular people. We put our hope in so many things, but not Jesus. We put our hope in ourselves, in our job, in our marital status, in whether we have kids or not. Or We can find, we chase after so many things that we think will bring us hope. But they will all fell, except for Jesus. So Matthew summarizes that Jesus is exactly who he said he is, and that the prophets told the people who he would be. This should have been expected. This is what Isaiah said would come and be, and Jesus was fulfilling all of these prophecies about himself. So I want to give you three questions to ask yourself. And just write these down, discuss it with your spouse, friend, roommate, children, parents, you name it. Number one, do you believe Jesus is who he says he is? Sounds like a simple question. But when you truly believe in something, you are passionate about it. You can't stop talking about it. You want everybody else to know about it. And so I'm not saying, do you privately believe that Jesus is who he says he is, but more, do, do your actions say that you believe Jesus is who he says he is? Understand, Satan is always lying to get us believe what isn't true about Jesus. Jesus is always telling us lies to try to get us to believe something else. Question number two. Sorry, Reed, I'm skipping some stuff. Are you guided by the Spirit, or are you walking in the world? God said, this is my Son in whom I am putting my Spirit. Uh, Galatians 5, 
uh, 19 through 26 separates. If you're walking in the flesh, this is what you're going to see living out in your life. If you're doing these things, just know you are in the flesh. But if you're doing these things, if these are the things that are emanating from your life, then you are walking by the Spirit. We should all have these things in front of us all the time, two lists to ask ourselves, which one are we actually following? And question number three, he is the hope of the nations. Are you passionately sharing him? We find ourselves in a lot of conversations every week with different people we work with, that we see, as we say, uh, everywhere we live, learn, work, and play. Are you passionately sharing Jesus? And that will tell you what you're truly passionate about. Lord, I thank you for who you are. I thank you that we can rely on you and your word. Lord, I thank you that you have loved us so much that you had compassion on us. Lord, it's so easy for us to look around and say, well, at least I'm not poor, at least I'm not hurting, and point out what's wrong with everybody else around us. But Lord, in all of those ways, spiritually, we are. We are spiritually in poverty without you. We are hopeless without you. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here this evening who has never put their faith in you, that you would be working in their hearts and minds this evening, that they would make you the forgiver of their sins and the leader of their life. Lord, I pray for those that do know you, that we would walk away and, and asking ourselves the question, are we truly, do we truly believe that you are who you said you are? Because if you are the great I am, the answer to all of life's problems, if you are the hope, Lord, I pray that we can only continually point people to you. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.